This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. I want to begin the message this morning by telling you a story which comes straight out of the heart of the Bible. It's a story that you may have read or maybe you're not familiar with it. It's from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah lived around 450 years before the birth of Jesus. He was in a foreign country, a Persian city of Susa, S-U-S-A, and he worked in the king's palace as the king's cupbearer. Evidently, he had a responsible position because he had a good chance to poison the king if he had not been of, if he had been of such an intention to do that. The king must have known that Nehemiah was trustworthy, though. This king, whose name was Artaxerxes, held Nehemiah in very high esteem. And even though Nehemiah did a good work in serving his king, yet his heart was back at his homeland in Jerusalem. Word came to Nehemiah that conditions in Jerusalem were very bad. The walls of the city were broken down. The gates were burned. The people of the city had been taken away as captive, he was told. And upon hearing these words, Nehemiah sat down and cried. But he also prayed. Finally, Nehemiah appeared one day before the king, who noticed that Nehemiah was very sad. The king asked Nehemiah to tell him what's wrong. And so Nehemiah unloaded the whole story on the king. He related the terrible conditions which existed back in his homeland. And after a conversation between the two, King Artaxerxes agreed to let Nehemiah return to Jerusalem for the purpose of trying to rebuild the wall of the city. Now, all was going well up to this point. Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem got to work on the wall with many who assisted him. And after a long time, the task was almost complete. Then appeared the troublemaker, whose name was Sanballat. He did not want to see the wall rebuilt for some reason or other. Sanballat was encouraged in his opposition by two cohorts, Tobiah and Geshem. They tried several tactics to defeat and frustrate Nehemiah. One thing they tried was scorn. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem heard it, they laughed us to scorn, despised us, and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? That's Nehemiah 2, verse 19. You know, the devil can often use scorn for his own purposes. Many a good Christian cause has had to go lacking because the devil has so effectively used words of scorn in the mouths of his followers, scorn against some work of the Lord. Well, when scorn did not work the way they wanted it to, these enemies of Nehemiah resorted to ridicule. And they said to him, as recorded in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall break down their stone wall. Here again, the devil often causes some people to ridicule the work of the Lord. When some do not wish to join in and play an active part in the Lord's work, 
one easy way to salve the conscience is by ridiculing the endeavor which is being made. Modern day ridiculers do not use the figure of a fox, a small animal being able to break down a huge wall. They use other figures of species. Maybe you've heard some of them. Why, that plan won't work here. Uh, our church doesn't need that program. Preacher, we've tried that before and it won't work. Well, that may all be good and fine, may be right, but people around here won't accept it. Ridicule can often be very effective for the devil's use. For who can answer a sneer? But that didn't stop Nehemiah. He went right on building. Well, his opponents tried another method. They threatened violence. But once again, Nehemiah was equal to the challenge. He put half the workers with spears in their hands, while the other half went right on working, carrying rocks and cementing them in place. And so the wall was built, with the exception of the doors on the gates. At this point, Sanballat made a proposition to Nehemiah. Why not come down? Let's talk things over, he asked. He wanted Nehemiah to come down to the plains of Ono, O-N-O. But Nehemiah replied, no, I can't leave this work and come down to you. He saw that any kind of interruption simply meant that, meant that the wall would not be finished. And the Lord had told him to build that wall. Nehemiah was convinced he could not compromise. Here we have that word, compromise. It's, it's a word that strikes a sour note with us, doesn't it? Because we so often associate it with the idea of watering down our convictions. Let me speak a word, though, in behalf of compromise. Stay with me now. According to the dictionary, a compromise is a settlement which is reached by arbitration or by consent reached by mutual concessions. Sometimes it means there may be some in-between land we can live with. Now, there's a virtue in some of that. If we insisted on refusing to compromise on anything at all, we would all become first-class bigots. We'd be utterly intolerant. Some of the greatest people in the world are those who have deep convictions, but who are tolerant toward those who don't share those convictions. Certainly there are times when compromise is totally wrong, but there are other times when compromise may well be the right thing, the Christian thing to do. Everybody in America thinks about Abraham Lincoln as a great statesman who stood for what he believed to be right. He was fearless in the face of opposition. However, one very special quality which stands out in the life of Abraham Lincoln was of his willingness to compromise when it was proper to do so. After the South was defeated in the Civil War, Lincoln told General Grant to give the men their horses. They'll need those for the spring plowing. Lincoln had the chance to be vindictive. He was on the winning side of the war but he was not vindictive. Rather, he showed understanding, patience, and forgiveness. And a great demonstration of compromise, Lincoln moved with malice toward none, with charity for all. 
Now, on the other extreme, there are those people who have no convictions. They're like the chameleon, the lizard-like creature who changes his color to fit every background he finds himself on. When he's on a brown leaf, he turns brown. When he's on a green background, he turns the color of green. You may have heard about the poor little chameleon who found himself one day on a piece of scotch plaid. He had a nervous breakdown. Well, the big question which we must face today is, when do we know those times when it's right to compromise and when we should refuse to compromise? Well, here's a little test I think we can use to help us. The more important a matter is, the less acceptable compromise becomes. Sometimes the things you're called upon to compromise about may not be very essential at all. And in such a situation, there's no harm in making adjustments. If no moral issue is involved, then why get so excited about it? I once heard of a church which got into a big fight among the members over which street the new entrance would face. The, the new sanctuary was being built at the corner of two streets. Some members wanted the entrance on one street, while others insisted it be on the other street. Well, fortunately, somebody came along and suggested that the entrance be built on the corner of both streets. That seemed to solve the problem. You remember the story in the 10th chapter of Acts, the vision that, that Peter had? That's a fascinating story, and this is a, a good thing that we can use to help us. Let me read from Acts 10, uh, starting somewhere along verse 9, I think it is. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. He became very hungry. He would have eaten but what they had made ready, but he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened, and a certain vessel descended up, up unto him. It had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him again the second time. What God hath cleansed, that called thou not common. This was done three times. And the vessel received up again into heaven. Three times it took. The whole point of this story, I think, is that Peter had become too intolerant. He thought that some people had no right to the kingdom of God since they were not of his own race. It took God three times of repeating this scene before Peter finally understood. What God was really saying to him, don't be so stubborn, Peter. You are defending an impossible position. Give a little. From this experience, I think Peter learned a lesson that there are other people in the world besides Jews. And God is interested in his people too. <laughs> Perhaps an even greater example of the right kind of compromise is found in the pattern of Jesus himself. 
Do you know that there were times when Jesus performed certain miracles? <clears throat> then he told his disciples, tell no man about this. Why did he say that? It was because he was not yet through with his work. He still had plans to go to Jerusalem, yes. But that would have been impossible if the people had so become so aroused about his ministry before the time was right. So Jesus sometimes asked people to keep quiet about what they had seen. Now, this may seem in the eyes of some to be compromise, but if it was, it was compromised for a greater goal out ahead. Now, having stated that there are certain times when compromise may be proper, let me move on to say that there are certainly times when it's wrong to stoop to compromise. I read some time ago about a young couple who moved into a very nice area of a certain city. They wanted to have a lot of friends. They liked their neighbors, but there were certain things their neighbors liked which this couple did not approve of. For example, when others in the neighborhood had parties, they usually turned out in, uh, to be drinking bouts. Everybody got drunk. Well, this couple did not want to be prudes. They didn't want to appear overly religious or self-righteous. So they thought it over and finally came up with what seemed to them to be a good solution. They said, what we'll do, we'll put up a bar in the basement of our house. We'll stock it with liquor. And when our friends want to have a party, they can go ahead. But we'll see, they will see that we're not going to indulge in that. In this way, we can be a good witness to our friends. So this is what they did. Well, you can probably imagine how the plan worked. It wasn't long before they were both drinking a little bit too. And after some time, the wife came to her pastor and she said, I don't care if my husband wants to get drunk now. That's all right. I just don't want him to beat the children. Strangely, this wife was actually defending her husband's right to get drunk since she had become a drinker herself now. The problem was that she felt that her husband had gone beyond the limit. Beating the children was too much. Well, this couple made one compromise, but they didn't stop there. The parties were held, the bar in their basement became very active, they felt the pressure to conform, and little by little, they made one adjustment after another. In the end, the children were being abused, and the wife was seeking a divorce. <clears throat> now, I'm sure that there are those within the sound of my voice right now who may be saying, but preacher, it does not always end that way. And I would say in response, yes, you are right. But those who are far smarter than I am can tell you that the first part of the brain, which is affected by the use of alcohol, is that part of the brain that enables you to make proper moral decisions. That's not a religious observation. That's a scientific truth. Compromise by surrender of moral principles will always carry you downhill. There are those who, according to their actions, do not agree with this, of course. But whether you agree or not, is some, and that's not something which affects the reality of the situation in the slightest. Oh, how quickly we can crumble, how easily we give up. Now, I've just used here the example of yielding to the encroachment of the use of beverage alcohol, 
But there are other examples which could well have been used. You can pick almost any great moral issue of our day, and those who have given it, uh, those who have given in a little bit here, a little bit there. Before you know it, you have refused to stand for something. You have fallen for anything. And you can make this application to other issues such as uh, gambling, abortion for convenience as a means of birth control, sexual promiscuity, marital infidelity, dishonesty in business, and on and on and on we can go. These things begin in such a small way and little by little, little areas of compromise, they grow into enormous social, moral, spiritual threats to true righteousness. Nehemiah, come down from that wall. Let's talk about it, said Sanballat. Why do other people want the Christians to come down to their level? It's because they'll feel more comfortable if you're down on their level from where you are closer to God. Look at the life of Martin Luther. He knew about the corruption in the church of his day indulgences being sold, poor people being forced to provide the money for the building of St. Peter's, those in high places in the church who betrayed their calling. The time came when Martin Luther could no longer live within that system. There was no way out for him. So he nailed his 95 theses or statements of belief on the door of the church, which caused a great uproar. Later, as he was made to stand before those who accused him, he was pressured to recant what he had said. But with strong conviction, Martin Luther said, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. I will not recant. God help me. So the question for us all today is, where are we going to take your stand? Have you already gone too far? You feel that you have compromised on the essentials. God stands ready to forgive any repentant sinner, sinner who is willing to confess and to seek his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're now in the time of great temptation. You're being tested right now. You have not yielded, but the temptation is so, so strong. God, God offers to you his help to see you through this time of temptation. Do you have great pressures to do that which you know is not God's will for your life? He calls out to you today to be true. As James chapter 3 verse 8 says, resist the devil and draw nigh to God. That says we can't fight the devil. He's too strong for us. All we can do is resist. And when we resist the devil, God will be there to help us as we draw nigh to him. We're going to sing in just a few minutes here at Ocean Lakes uh, an old gospel song, I Need Thee Every Hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. Oh God, help me today. Help each of us to know that we can resist temptation, not in our own power, but through the power of Jesus. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So help us to know, Lord, when we need 
to stand firm for our convictions, even as people of old have done, such as Nehemiah, and people in our day who stand firm for convictions as well. Give us strength, O God, in time of crisis, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.